Hello and welcome to this week's Next Sense Institute podcast. My name is Trudy Smith and I'm your digital host for this week. I'm so delighted to have Jessica Kirkness with us to talk. And Jessica, welcome. Can you please introduce yourself to our audience? Thank you so much for having me, Trudy. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes, I am Jessica Kirkness. I am a researcher and writer at Macquarie University in Sydney, Australia, and I am currently working on a book called A Sense of You, which is a memoir about my deaf grandparents. So a lot of the things that I write about are sort of um, interested in the idea of hearing and deafness and identity, sign language, culture, that kind of stuff. And that's what I've got you here to talk about today. De St. Loop described the history of the deaf as a history of misunderstandings. What do they mean by that and how has this inspired your work? I think um, to answer the latter part of that question first, I think the inspiration for me was uh, that I felt my grandparents were deeply misunderstood by the wider world. I think their experiences of growing up deaf in a predominantly hearing world meant that there were many language barriers for them to overcome, a lot of misunderstanding about sign language itself, you know, that it was a complete language in its own right and a legitimate way of communicating, um, that, you know, the assumptions about deaf people being uneducated or dumb, you know, terms like deaf and dumb and things, I think really grated for them. And it was very frustrating, I think, that perhaps they weren't taken as seriously as they could have been. And I think that that's something that a lot of deaf studies literature calls attention to that um, you know the history of deaf people has been remarkably about their rights needs uh, being misunderstood uh, or being very clumsily catered for um, yeah. things like you know paternalism or um, misguided philanthropy and things like that. Mm, absolutely it's um, and and you've got all of this sort of captured in your memoir a sense of you mm. so what is, tell us a little bit more about this book and, and what inspired doing this kind of work. Yeah, so I mean, it was part of a project I did for a PhD, and it was a thesis that, um, well, the exegesis component of the research was looking at the idea of the hearing line, which is um, a term Christopher Krantz uses to describe a boundary between deaf and hearing cultures and deaf and hearing people. And I was really fascinated by that. And kind of, I, I suppose, the liminality of my own position being someone who was around deafness and deaf culture, but was hearing, um, was sort of an insider and outsider to deafness in the deaf world. Um, and so... I guess uh, it started off as a thesis and then half of that was a memoir that I developed through the PhD process. And I, it's a collection of family stories, essentially. You know, it's about my relationship with my grandparents, also uh, more broadly about that idea of the hearing line and sort of boundaries and communication, the nature of familial relationships and you know, I think in all families, there are sort of tensions to navigate, but I was thinking about the particular things that crop up in families that have deaf members, sort of issues around who can use uh, or who uses English and who uses sign language, um, you know, whether or not there's lip reading, whether or not there's kind of cultural nuances to consider, things like, um, you know, we're all very gestural in our family, I think, very, um, you know, uh, visual as well. Mm -hmm. My yep. grandparents were very, very visual people. So so I'm, I'm writing about their hypervisuality. And I guess in many ways, my hyper auditory status. <laughs> I'm a very 
uh, I'm very much interested in hearing as much as I'm interested in deafness and thinking about how being hearing constructs a, a way of being in the world as much as being deaf does. Yeah. And I want to unpack a little bit more about those family interactions. And I wonder what you learned by doing the exegesis work about your own family and the hearing and the deaf members of that family and how they interacted, were there things that surprised you? Were there um, nice surprises, interesting surprises? I think all of the above. <laughs> it was a really lovely bonding experience with my grandparents. They were really big collaborators with me. I mean, I did all of the writing, of course, but they subjected themselves to many, many hours of informal and formal uh, interviews with me. And they shared a lot of their history with me, things that I wasn't necessarily privy to as a child. I'd heard lots of stories about my mother and my uncle growing up and, you know, the funny things that they did, like blasting music at, you know, the wee hours of the morning. And obviously my grandparents had no idea about it. And then they found out later on from the <laughs> you know, very cheeky, naughty things like that, that uh, was sort of part of the family folklore. But in digging deeper, I found out a lot more about their schooling, their education, um, they both went to schools for the deaf in the UK and I actually visited both of those schools when I went over to the UK in 2016, so a while ago now. Mm. Uh, but it was a really wonderful pilgrimage of sorts for me into their history and into my family heritage. Um, it was great to work with my mum in many ways. So my grandparents and my mum's parents and I was sort of mining her experiences of being a coder and what that meant to her. Um, and how she relates to her parents, some of the kind of the beautiful intimacies in her relationship with them. They actually grew up in the house next door to us for most of my life. So it, that was a really lovely part of our family structure, I think, part of the family dynamic. Um, but also frustrations, you know, that um, <laughs> my grandparents would appear at the back door when mum's just got out of the shower and <laughs> little yeah. things like that, that, you know, um, you know, they're not necessarily related to deafness necessarily, but I guess just the intimacy and the closeness of, of that type of a relationship. Yeah. So I think it was a really bonding experience. It was really illuminating for me and understanding how they've understood the world and what their place within the world has been. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of the negative things that they've experienced as well. So ridicule from hearing members of the community. Um you know, being on the train and being harassed. My grandmother will no longer take trains because um, she's had sort of misunderstandings with people where they've yelled at her and she hasn't heard and so hasn't kind of responded to their requests. And so then there's been swearing and big sort of blow-ups. And um, so that's been really frightening for her, I think, mm. in many ways um, and unfortunate. And people sort of staring at signing and things like that that I think really infuriated my grandfather um, and mm. made very other yep. in the world um so things like that were really interesting to learn about sometimes very sad to learn about especially the sort of the history of oralism um in my grandparents era you know that they were really forbidden to sign and that that had a real lasting effect I think on the ways they understood themselves mm. and their their culture and their language yeah, we um, hear a lot about that, you know, the, the Milan conference and that decision, but it's you, you, you've had the opportunity to hear from people who have that lived experience. And so that would heighten just how catastrophic that decision was. 
Absolutely. And I think it was so varied. So even between my two grandparents, my grandmother, for example, is an incredible lip reader and she really prides herself on her ability to lip read and she learned to speak through sort of um, using very tactile methods so you know touching her teacher's throat and you know the facial um, touching and touching of the lips and you know she would tell me about techniques they use where they would scatter chalk powder on the back of hands and sort of put the hand to the mouth and saying a bee for example chalk would stay or a pea the chalk would scatter so little things like that um so she was really proud of her ability to use English um and to, to use spoken English particularly but my grandfather was much more of a signer and he um he had a car accident a few years back and so was blind in one eye as well so signing was really the only way that he could communicate um and I mean of course he, he could use spoken English and often did use spoken English with us but just for for clarity, it was um, often better to use sign. And mm. I think there, there was a, a degree of shame, I think, that they both carried from, from, that, time. Mm. from that time and from perceptions of sign language at the time, you know, that the supposed inferiority of sign language, um, they, they really felt that. And I think my grandpa in particular, he was always showing me videos of deaf success and, you know, deaf gain and that kind of stuff, um, you know, whenever their friends would be on, um, you know, BBC series in, in the UK, he'd show me the videos and um, with a lot of pride and a lot of desire, I think, not just to tell me, but to tell the world that you know, deaf people are, are capable of, of all sorts of wonderful things and they're constantly underestimated. Absolutely. And you can't be what you can't see. Mm. And so I think it's really important that if, if they're highlighting that, that we make sure that the kids who are coming through today see those successes and, and hear those stories and recognise that, that they can have any opportunity that they want. It's just a matter of raising the profile and ensuring that these successes are shared more broadly. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think um, in truth, even though the story I'm telling is a bit different, perhaps um, it's not a deaf story. It is a it is a hearing story, but it, it is about deafness and hearing. But I think that was one of the reasons I wanted to write that, you know, my grandfather had always intended to write a book about his own life, but he never really got around to doing so. Uh, and then we started this process throughout the PhD of, of exchanging stories. And he often edited a lot of the work and a lot of his comments were you know oh there's a comma out of place <laughs> so it was never really content focused but he um he was very eager I think to tell stories about his experience and about the deaf world and I suppose in a way I'd I'd love for people to to read about my grandparents lives and to understand something about what it is to be deaf in the world and what it is to be hearing in the world um, and to have examples of of people who have, um, you know, had these really diverse experiences, sometimes challenging experiences, and have lived really full lives, really mm. interesting lives. Was there ever a sense, particularly with your grandfather, I suspect, of ownership of those stories, and in trying, making, wanting to make sure that they were told right? Yes. But it was more about fact checking for him. So a lot of the time it was squaring the timeline. So I think I, I once misspelled the name of his hometown and he was really irate about it. <laughs> and um, just wanting to make sure that everything was in its right place. Um, and certainly there are stories, there, there are chapters in the book that are really about their past where I guess my uh, narrator's voice is in a 
a backgrounded position. You know, it's really their story that's coming out. There's a lot of heavy quotation and a lot of dialogue. I'm really facilitating their story. Um, and so th those were the chapters I think that my my grandfather really wanted ownership of in some ways or really wanted a, a big hand in. And I can see his fingerprints all over those chapters and that's a really lovely thing to be left with. Absolutely, yeah. Now, you used to just studies philosophy in your work. And I'm, so I'm wondering what you're hoping that your work will achieve. I think for me, Deaf Studies philosophy was a really helpful framework in thinking through some of the issues I mentioned around, you know, the history of deafness um, in much of the world, but in Australia, in the UK, where my grandparents were from, thinking about, you know, autism, um, the persistent autism, you know, not many people know that term. Um, Can you explain that for our audience, for anyone who's listening? Sure. So it's a term that Tom Humphreys came up with. He's a deaf scholar who talks about autism being very similar to sexism, racism, a kind of prejudice that um, privileges kind of hearing and speaking, um, but also assumes that the hearing way of being in the world is the, the normal, the neutral, the natural, and is superior to uh, the deaf way of being in the, in the world. So, um, so I was really interested in those experiences of autism where people had behaved in a prejudiced way towards my grandparents. And that was a really helpful, I had never heard that term actually before I started the research. Um, and things like phonocentrism, so the privileging of speech, um, the idea of deaf gain. I mean, that was always implicit in the way my grandparents sort of carried themselves, but having terms to go to in deaf studies literature and um, just really helped me solidify, I think, what what is so beautiful and gorgeous about deaf culture and what I was so desperate in many ways for people to know about. Um, and also, I think one of the biggest things for me was that it helped cast or shine a light on my own hearingness, you know, that suddenly I was really aware of the fact that the way I engage with the world is through a set of hearing assumptions, um, that I operate with my body in a way that is hearing. So, for example, my grandmother, you know, she taps me all the time to get my attention. And it used to drive me mad as a kid. <laughs> like use your voice I can hear you um but that's her way and you know that I think that's such a gorgeous the tactility of deaf culture I just adore um and now I find that I actually touch <laughs> grab everybody and um you know and I'll find myself teaching a class for example or uh you know speaking in a a shopping mall and I'll start signing at somebody across the space and then realize oh wait uh, you can't sign. Never mind. Yeah. <laughs> um, so those little kind of idiosyncrasies, I suppose, that fold their way into into my world as well. But but um, also my separateness. You know that I'm that I'm not deaf. That I'm I'm very much hearing, and I had to interrogate that quite a lot in writing. Mm. I can imagine, and I don't think you're the only hearing person who can sign that hasn't tried to sign at friends across shopping <laughs> centres, across yeah. hotels, and when you talk to someone who doesn't speak English, I start by myself signing thinking that will help <laughs> yeah absolutely it's so funny use any strategy you can <laughs> we're communicators absolutely I'm not going to be the only one who wants to read more of your work Jessica so I'm wondering how our audience can access some of your writing and, and perhaps this book sure so the book comes out in 2023 so it should be available on Amazon and in bookstores uh, it's being published with Alan and Unwin which is wonderful um, I'll have a publication month very shortly, <laughs> but it'll be out sometime next year. And uh, in the meantime, there is a short 
uh, section of the memoir available on Mianjin magazine. So that's M E A N J I N. And if you just Google my name, the title of the piece is Our Place. Okay, we could definitely put a link to that in the show notes so that people can access that. So that's a sense of you. And we sounds like a work that all of us should be reading. And, and so we thank you for your efforts. I'm sure your grandparents are grateful, but as are we. And thank you for this insight into your family and your work. It's been really lovely to talk to you today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Trudy. What a pleasure. 